Well, the Lord bless you. Great to see you here, and it'll be even better to see you here on July 19th. I remember uh, just a few short weeks ago when we uh, finalized that date of July 19th, uh, Jim Clark and I, the first thing we did was walk across the parking lot and up the stairs and over to Mike's classic burger, uh, through the door, found Mike and said, We'll all be back on the 19th of July, and Mike's face lit up. So as you plan on coming next week, I was noticing on the thermometer this morning as I was pulling into the lot at 9 o'clock, it was already 78 degrees. Uh, Bring your water bottle, maybe a handheld umbrella. You might want to come early and get a breakfast burrito over at Mike's. Uh, When you're done here, you may want to get an early lunch over there. Um, Uh... We're looking forward to seeing you back. Mike is looking forward to seeing us all as well. Well, we are in the last little section of this letter at which we've been looking for a number of months. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll begin in verse number 12 and we'll take it right to the end of the book. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. Why don't you read along with me? Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas um, uh, were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours." Give recognition to such men. The Church of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church and their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord Come, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thus far, God's word. Well, on September 1st, 2019, Paul picked up his pen, as it were, uh, really a scribe did, and we began to follow him through this first of two letters to the church at Corinth. Uh, A big city, or rather a big church in a big city with some big problems, largely related to divisions uh, inside the church, exacerbated by matters outside the church that encouraged men and women to live lives that were uh, largely me-centered as opposed to others-centered. Well, Gratefully, as big as these problems were, Paul had an even bigger solution to the problems at Corinth. 
uh, allowing them to see everything through a new lens, to, to see everything right side up. And that solution, as we saw in chapter number 13, is love. And that love, as we saw in chapter 15, is founded on the gospel. Folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, the power of God. Chapter 1, verse 18. Well, ten and a half months later, after uh, seasons of social unrest and financial crisis and a global pandemic and painful losses within the Grace family, most recently, as, as uh, the Daniels mentioned, uh, Dave DeMille, who suddenly passed away a week ago, uh, tomorrow morning, and again, our love goes out to Shaney and all five of the children. Uh, ten and a half months later, here we are on July 12, 2020, and Paul is about to put that pen down. But before he does, we need to follow him through right to the very last word because Bible readers in general and Bible teachers in particular can view either end of a New Testament letter like either end of a loaf of bread or, or a piece of fruit or a vegetable. Uh, nutritious, but not delicious. <laughs> so the, the, the dry, dense heels on a loaf of bread, they're, they're nutritious, in fact, as I understand it, the most nutritious parts of the loaf, but not terribly tasty to many. Uh, either end of a piece of celery, great for putting into soup, not so delicious to munch on. Uh, either end of, of uh, the rind of a watermelon. Uh, nutritious, as I uh, read, uh, filled with vitamins B and C. Citrulline, good for blood circulation and heart health. Uh, not so good uh, or satisfying on a hot summer day. So because either end of the loaf of bread, the fruit, the vegetables, though nutritious, are not delicious, they are cut off and discarded so attention can be given entirely to what's in the middle. Well, as it is with these, so it is with New Testament letters, or at least can be. Uh, beginnings are dismissed as, as formulaic, following a very predictable pattern of, of uh, author and greeting and audience, cut off, discarded. Uh, the endings are dismissed as trivial. I mean, really, what is there to learn from Paul when he writes, greet each other with a holy kiss? Or uh, make sure you bring the books and especially the parchments. Or come to me at Nicopolis where I'm spending the winter. So they're cut off and discarded. But as we learned last week, Eric began to show us there in verses uh, 1 through 11 of this chapter that um, the last word here in 1 Corinthians is helpful for doing 1 Corinthians. You see, Paul didn't write this letter to be uh, a source for uh, sermons or, or books. He wrote this letter to be done, uh, to be lived out, uh, to heal division, not just to expose it, to practice love, not just to extol it, to live the gospel, not just to explain it. And so the last word here in this letter is helpful for doing this letter. And that last word is summed up in the term rhythm. 
Uh, last week in paragraphs one through three, Eric explained uh, the regular rhythm of Paul's life as seen in his instructions about collecting money for the persecuted church, planning travels for himself, making provisions for Timothy, all of which were thoughtful and measured and purposeful. Or as Eric put it, unremarkable. And then he went on to exhort us to live unremarkable lives for the sake of the gospel, not to disdain the mundane. I was reminded of that exhortation just this past Tuesday when I learned about uh, the homegoing of longtime missionary Ray Lynch. Now, um, Ray, as a young man, worked up at Whittier College. He was an instructor in journalism. He was a director of media relations for the college. But one day in 1957, as he was walking across front campus, a gentleman came up to him and handed him a tract entitled, What Must I Do to Be Saved? And uh, Ray read that tract, and he gave his heart to Christ. Well, his wife thought he had lost his mind, and so she went on to divorce him. And so uh, Ray decided that he would uh, literally then go out to tell the world about Jesus, And I followed Ray's travels throughout my life, and throughout most of my adult life, I received his monthly newsletters. And when I think back on those those letters that he was very faithful to write, I'm impressed by the uh, uh, unremarkable and mundane nature of his work that included extended seasons of waiting, uh, waiting on uh, visas, waiting on support, waiting on accommodations. But like Paul, Ray's life had this, had this regular rhythm to it. He was thoughtful. He was measured. He was purposeful. So much so that over the course of 50 years, his ministry went longer than that, but over the course of 50 years, Ray preached the gospel in every single country of the world. It's over 200 countries. Ray said, I did it to please him who has chosen me. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And I figured it was quite important to take seriously his last command, to go into all the world. So how did Ray do that? Well, in a word, in fact, in Ray's own word, he did it systematically. And he was dogged in that systematic, regular pursuit. I I remember how long and how hard he waited to get into North Korea. Multiple attempts, multiple refusals, and then finally an open door. And that was just one of almost 220 countries. So to do 1 Corinthians requires this Pauline rhythm of life that's unremarkably regular, reliable, routine. But it also requires a rhythm of life that is relational. And that's what we're going to see this morning here in verses 12 through the end of the book. We're going to be looking at the relational rhythm of Paul's life. Now again, 
Paul did not write this letter as source material for sermons and books. Paul wrote this letter to do this letter, and this letter is done in relationship. Just, just notice a number of Paul's relationships here in this passage. There are personal relationships. We see six by name. And there are corporate relationships here. Unknown in number, but uh, no doubt extensive, uh, involve, involving a web of church families, a team of church workers. Notice too here in this passage, uh, Paul's need for relationships, including support in the work of ministry, company as a single man, refreshment for a wearied spirit. In fact, the value of Christian relationships has been uh, acutely uh, felt and seen during these days of quarantine when our in-person counters are either limited or in some cases non-existent. I, I just learned about one a person here in our church who hasn't left their home since March. So this is why so many of, so many of us are looking forward to next Sunday morning. And this is why, uh, candidly, the elders over the last few weeks have been especially praying for those among us who live alone. Because I was single into my 30s, I well remember that sometimes visceral ache uh, that comes with loneliness. Uh, On one occasion when I was in grad school, I I faced a weekend with neither uh, plans made nor nor friends available. And I can remember walking through the hallway, the main hallway there uh, over on campus, just asking uh, persons with whom I was merely acquainted if they wanted to do anything that night, if they wanted to uh, spend any time together that weekend. And everyone, right down to the last person, was otherwise occupied, leaving me alone and lonely. You know, I mentioned that all of these years later because the pain was so great, was so deep, that I can still feel the residuals of it all of these decades later. And if that was just one weekend, how much greater it must be for those of you who have been facing this months on end. So uh, July 19th can't come fast enough for me. I hope as many of you uh, as uh, possible will be here next Sunday morning. And that's why this morning, this morning, we're going to consider the relational rhythm of Paul's life. First in profile, we'll see that there in verses 13 and 14a. Second in practice, we'll see that in verses 12 and then 14b through the end of the book. And then we're going to look at the manner in which that rhythm maintains its beat. And that by way of love. So profile, practice, love, the rhythm, uh, the relational rhythm of Paul's life. So that's our way forward this morning. Let's begin by uh, looking at Paul's relational rhythm in profile, uh, which naturally assumes that Paul was already doing what he encourages the Corinthians to do here in verses 13 and 14a. First, to be watchful, to be alert, 
to be on their guard. Watchfulness is a common uh, New Testament exhortation multiple times in eight different books. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul told the Colossian church to be watchful in order to maintain a proper perspective in life and that by way of prayer. Uh, Peter told the church scattered to be watchful in order to protect themselves from the devil who wanted to devour them. Jesus said to be watchful in order to prepare for the last day, which really is the day for which we're all living. Now, to be sure, God's Word instructs overseers to watch out for the church, but here it clearly instructs those in the church to watch out for themselves. So are you living a watchful life? As, 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 as my football coach used to say, is your head on a swivel? Are you looking out for the dangers? Are you maintaining that perspective? Are you longing for the last day by remaining watchful? Well, the second aspect of this profile is to stand firm in the faith. Now, the faith about which Paul is writing here is the gospel uh, about which he spoke in chapter 15, beginning in 1 uh, down through verse 11. Christ died and was buried. Christ rose and appeared. That's the faith in which the Corinthians stand. But here, Paul exhorts them to stand firm to stand fast, to remain fixed in that faith because already there are some who aren't. Uh, So you'll recall after objectively proving the fact of the resurrection uh, back there in chapter 15, Paul asks, how then can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your Faith is in vain. Your faith is futile, he goes on to say, and you're still in your sins. So Paul says, stand firm in the faith as it was delivered to you. Not what people make of it, but as it was delivered to you. That's authentic faith. That's saving faith. As, 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 as Paul told the church at Rome, Uh, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Throughout my years of ministry, I found that most persons with faith problems also have word problems. That's why it's so important to read the Bible and, and grow in your familiarity with it, your knowledge of it. As Kent Hughes has rightly said, you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. So stand firm in the faith and that as delivered by way of God's word. The third aspect of this profile is act like men. Now, this is an exhortation for both men and women. So what does uh, Paul mean by instructing even women to act like men? Well, as we know from this letter, following Christ isn't easy. It it requires that believing men and women swim against the prevailing currents of our culture, even at the risk of persecution. So that means that uh, we need to be watchful and we need to be standing firm. In a moment, we're going to see it requires that we be strong. And here it requires that we act like men. 
Now, in exhorting the Corinthians to act like men, Paul communicates two things, both of which were widely understood and accepted in the first century. So don't hear this as our 21st century, century world would have you hear it. That, that is to say, in the worst sense, concerning the worst things about men, but, but rather hear it in the best sense, because that's the sense in which Paul wrote it, and that's the sense in which God intends for us all to hear it. First, the Corinthians were to act with the strength of a man versus that of a woman. But, but not only that, second, the Corinthians were to act with the maturity of a man versus that of a child. One scholar puts it like this. The expression itself is a reflection of the way God designs men and women in their physical differences. That men are generally, not exclusively, but generally stronger than women and more mature than boys. So in 21st century parlance, we might put it to a mixed audience, man up. Again, Paul doesn't mean that a woman should always act like a man any more than he means that a man should always act like a woman after describing his ministry among the Thessalonians like that of a nursing mother. So a couple of other Bible translations have accurately rendered this passage as be courageous. Uh, which, when coupled with the fourth aspect of Paul's profile, that, that when also be strong, puts it in sync with the command issued to the men and women who were told to take the promised land. Three times in Deuteronomy, be strong and courageous. Three times in the book of Joshua, be strong and courageous, as well as be strong and very courageous, and do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, be strong and courageous. So may we be, now more than ever. The fifth and final aspect of this profile is to act in love. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. This is especially important for the Corinthians for whom everything that had been done had not been done in love. Uh, the theologically strong had uh, failed to love those who were weak. The monetarily rich had failed to love the poor. The verbally gifted had failed to show love to those who needed building up. So as Paul memorably explains in chapter 13, and now reminds us of here, love is what regulates and maintains that relational rhythm here in this profile. Just, just consider again all the aspects of love that Paul parses out in chapter 13. Patient love, kind love, humble love, honorable love, deferential love, peaceful love, gracious love, truthful love, protective love, trustworthy love, hopeful love, tireless love, all of which are now going to be worked out through the balance of this passage. So let's take a look at Paul's relational rhythm in 
practice. We looked at it in profile, but now we're going to look at all that worked out here in practice. And to begin, we'll do so by, by looking at a pair of encouragements. First, that Apollos visit the church at Corinth. Now, this, occur, uh, this encouragement was apparently in response to an inquiry made uh, by the church concerning Apollo, since it follows the final now concerning statement there in verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos. And notice a couple of interesting things, uh, uh, both of which uh, in this encouragement are conditioned by love. First, Although uh, a fan base had formed around Apollos, we saw that back in chapters 1 and 3, although this fan base had formed around him, Paul didn't take it personally. He he was neither threatened nor inhibited by it. In fact, not only did, did Paul remain in gospel partnership here with Apollos, but he strongly encouraged Apollos to visit the church at Corinth. In fact, the idea here is that he, he, he went up alongside Apollos and hollered into his ear, go to Corinth. <laughs> you know, over the years I've noticed that some of the most delicate egos belong to those who are in ministry. Um, and you, you can understand why. It, it, it makes sense. People in ministry are in the people business. And so ministers want to be liked by the persons to whom they minister. They want to be appreciated for the work that they do. And Paul here is no different. But Paul didn't let the, the popularity of his counterpart offend him or keep him from commending Apollos to the Corinthian church. How does that happen? Well, it happens by way of love, gospel love, love that sees through potential offenses so that it can focus on a greater good. Second, notice that although Paul encouraged Apollos to visit Corinth, Apollos said no. (laughs) Could you imagine saying no to the Apostle Paul? Apollos did. I I think that's beautiful. I think it's beautiful that Apollos felt the freedom to say no. I think it's beautiful that Paul felt uh, uh, the freedom to accept that no. That mutual kind of deference there comes by way of love. Paul's relational rhythm and practice is also seen by way of a second encouragement here in this passage, there in verses 15 and 16 that the Corinthian church subject themselves to faithful Christian workers and laborers, namely the household of Stephanus. Now, why the, why the household of Stephanus? Well, for one thing, they were the longest standing members uh, in the church. I know I pay great deference to uh, certain persons in this church, uh, one with whom I, I, I serve, serve on a board who have been here not just years, but decades on end. But for another thing, uh, the household of Stephanus had distinguished themselves for devoted service. In other words, they weren't self-focused. They were others-focused. They were loving. They, They maintained their relational rhythm and profile as well as practice, even among a difficult people by way of love. And as I was preparing this past week, I began to ask myself, who are the loving 
uh, people, the, the others-focused people here at Grace, who are like the household of Stephanus. We do well to honor them. Honor them for their service, uh, their wisdom. Love them for their enduring love to us. I, I'd encourage you this week, as a person like that comes to mind, or even a few, to take a moment and either write them an email or jot a note and uh, send it to them and tell them uh, how much you appreciate their service. Well, Paul's relational rhythm and practice is also seen in his rejoicing over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and uh, Achaicus. These are men who uh, uh, were a well-known blessing to the church. We see that there in verse 18. And now we're such a blessing, even a refreshment to Paul. And I love Paul's vulnerability here. He's, he's not above admitting his need for refreshment. He's not above receiving that refreshment. And he's not above rejoicing over that refreshment. Uh, sometimes, and especially leaders, like to hold it close to the vest. You know, they don't need anybody else. Uh, Paul wasn't that kind of person. He did need. He expressed his need. He received their uh, ministry to him, and he was grateful for it. And you know how this happens? It happens by Paul initially loving these men, making an investment in the lives of these men, and then by these men subsequently loving Paul in return. Now it's worth noting here that Paul could have dealt with all of these issues uh, in the Corinthian church through the already established lines of authority. No doubt there was a leadership structure uh, there at Corinth. But instead, according to Paul Barnett, the apostle teaches, teaches, teaches so that believers know how to think and what to believe. And then by way of example, he points to those who are lovingly doing both. Stephanus, Fortunatus. Achaicus. And he says, give recognition to those men. So Paul makes it clear that in God's economy, those with loving moral authority deserve great respect. A, a, a title is not required for respect or even sway in God's family. Well, Paul's relational rhythm and practice is further seen in the extended greetings that he offers, beginning in verse number 19. Uh, and I want us to notice three things. First of all, notice the familial source and the domestic origin of those greetings. You see that there in verse number 19. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church, in their house, send you hearty greetings. Now, elsewhere, uh, Paul describes the church as a household comprised of households. And in these days, or rather, if these days of quarantine have taught us nothing else, they've taught us the importance of each household, the household in which you're gathered right now, in the life of the church. Think of it, wherever you are this morning accentuates the fact that the ministry of grace has been hardwired right, <clears throat> right into your complex or, uh, or your neighborhood or, or your building. 
How wonderfully loving of the Lord to have designed his work to reach every last part of your world as well as the world at large. Second, notice the familial nature of these greetings. Uh, accentuated there in verse number 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Uh, that's clear enough. It's even clearer in Romans 16 where the, the, the familial connections abound. Uh, Paul writes about sisters and brothers and mothers and kinsmen. Uh, listen, listen to what one scholar writes. This, this is really interesting. How moving it is to ponder that after just a few years of Paul's ministry, there were congregations of brothers and sisters, okay, family language, in Roman Asia, composed in the main of Gentiles, who belonged to Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, Jews, Gentiles. Uh, the, the scholar goes on to write, this is nothing less than the work of God by his word and his spirit working through his servant Paul and his co-workers. He concludes, this is a challenge and encouragement to the ongoing work of evangelism today, which as we see here sets the stage for substantial and ongoing racial reconciliation. Third, notice the the familial token uh, of these greetings, which is a holy kiss, verse number 20, which bespeaks love because it's a kiss, respect because it's holy, mutual, or uh, equality because it's mutual. Well, Paul's relational rhythm and practice is finally seen in his personal greeting. Again, up to this point, there's a, a scribe who's been taking down what Paul has been writing. Uh, now he's going to pick up the pen and with his own hand write his own greeting. But, but then he goes on to, to say just a few more things. Be, before we look at what he writes, though, I, I want you to consider this. All of the Corinthian failures have come from a lack of love, Right? Their, their litigiousness, their, their sexuality, their pride, their me-centeredness, their willful disobedience. But that wasn't their greatest failure. The, their greatest failure was a lack of love for Jesus. And so with his own hand, Paul goes on to write, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Now, those words here at the conclusion dovetail with some that he wrote back in chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 6, where he wrote, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we exist. So 16.22 and 8.6 complement each other and, and together echo Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which famously says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. So the New Testament Jesus is to be loved like and on the same level with the Old Testament Yahweh. That is elevated Christology. And as Paul writes, 
Those who do not love Jesus in that way are doomed. They're, they're, They're doomed. Paul doesn't say that in anger. No, he says it in love. His desire, not that those who fail to love Christ would go to hell, but that they start living in love according to the love that has been shown to them by God in Christ. Because as C.S. Lewis famously put it, either Jesus was the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. So who is the Jesus whom you worship? Is he a moral teacher, which Lewis says is really as good as a madman or something worse? Or do you worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Paul says there's only one choice. We either love him as God or we really don't love him at all. Finally, notice that Paul offers three brief little prayers in closing. First, uh, we sang about it earlier. He, he writes, our Lord, come. Maranatha is the word. All of this is for today, but it's not just about today. Paul is, is looking to the last day. So this, this reveals Paul's love for and longing after the last day. Second, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, revealing Paul's understanding that love for the Lord Jesus can only be accomplished by the grace of the Lord Jesus. All of this live, again, about which Paul has been writing, is not anything that he or the Corinthians can generate within themselves. It all comes by way of the goodness of Jesus and that by way of his grace. And then third and finally, he writes, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Revealing that even with all the the tensions between Paul and the Corinthian church, the apostle continued to lead with love and in love as exemplified in Christ. Chapter 11, verse 1. Christ-like love, gracious love, abundant love, enduring love, That's what the church at Corinth needed, and that's what we need today, again and again and again. Near the end of his life, uh, missionary Ray Lynch, whom I mentioned at the outset this morning, was asked what he was learning. He's an octogenarian at this point, and Lynch replied, Well, there are a lot of things that I'm still learning, like learning to love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, ah, whew, I'm still learning it. What's the value of going into all the world if we're just banging gongs or clanging cymbals? What's the point of it, Ray said, if we don't have love? Ray exemplified his love for Christ by way of his love for the world. And he gave himself for the world. But you know what? Ray also exemplified his love for Christ by way of his enduring love for the wife who divorced him and his children by whom he was estranged. I mentioned receiving those monthly letters. And again, he was rock solid with those monthly letters. But I can remember year after year, decade after decade, he would write about 
sending at Christmas time or on birthdays gifts to his wife, to his children, all of which every year were returned. I might not have even done it to begin with. I might have become, I would have become discouraged and discontinued it. But throughout his life, Ray continued to show love to those who no longer loved him by giving gifts. That's how Jesus loves us. Even when we were yet sinners, he loved us by dying for us. And even those who love us today, but continue to do our own thing, he loves us and loves us and loves us always. So may we always be learning what it means to love like Christ. From him whose name is love and who himself said, by all this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That kind of love leads to a regular and relational rhythm of life that can transform the world since it allows one to see everything through a new lens. Let's pray. Lord, that's a lens through which we want to see our world, beginning in our own homes, our own church, and then beyond. So I pray that we would all be Bible men and women, helped by your Holy Spirit, encouraged along by one another, uh, ripped away from our me-centered moorings to live other centered lives, all for the sake of your strengthening and expanding kingdom in this world. Oh Lord, may your kingdom come. Maranatha, Lord, we pray, come, we ask, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.